Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss optimism fatigue. Uh, and then we're going to talk to Simon Wills from Christians Against Poverty. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, we are glad to have you joining us today. Find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online, 1160hope.com, and our podcast. You can find it wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And, uh, Ian, we have to start by talking about what the heck? Why is it raining all day? This just makes me sad. <laughs> you, you do love beginning the show every day with the weather, don't you? That's really, uh, that's a Brian Fromm constant. It's, it's a new move. It's, it's, that's what I'm going with now. But, uh, yeah, very, it was very uh, edgy of you. Thank you. You know, I, I read that article once with the Today Show. They said they know if they start with weather, they're going to get their biggest audience. And I was like, oh, fascinating. So that's a real thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Actually, like a weather emergencies. If they have a tornado story, a severe thunderstorm story, something. If they can get Al Roker into the A block, that is I their gotcha. dream. I, I read that article once. So um, as opposed to me just going, huh, it rained outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it still is, I think. Yeah, no, it's a nasty day. Nasty day today, but. Uh, I did see next week we're going to hit 80 degrees, so it's coming 80 degrees. So, uh, but you'll still be in your basement, so well, you won't know. You won't right. know one way or the other. No idea. No idea what's happening in the outside world. <laughs> the way we've been starting each of the shows over the past eight or nine weeks, it, can you believe? By the way, nine weeks since like the schools got canceled, nine weeks since we closed down churches and everything else. That is, uh, in some ways, that. In some ways, that doesn't feel like it's been that long. In some ways, it feels longer. I don't quite know how to put it into practice, but uh, it has been pretty crazy. But the way we've been doing this, as Ian and I are both at our houses uh, doing the show, is uh, to just kind of highlight some aspect of the coronavirus pandemic, some aspect. Sometimes it's the health side. Sometimes we talk churches. Today, I want to talk about some unemployment numbers that, that are coming out. These are a, a little old, but I wanted to talk specifically uh, about what they look like for our state in particular. So uh, this was uh, just from uh, yesterday. Oh, no, actually today. It says the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, made America's job market go from 60 to zero in the blink of an eye. More than 36 million Americans have filed for initial unemployment benefits in the past seven weeks, a burst that economists say is unprecedented. I compare it to a natural disaster, a terrorist attack, and a financial shock all at once, said Greg Dachau, uh, a U.S. economist at Oxford Economics. We've never had this in our history uh, before And then when you go down, they break it down by state. And I want to tell you, in Illinois, uh, these numbers say that Illinois uh, has 967,000 unemployment claims since March the 14th. Try to get your head around that number. Uh, isn't it w wild, whether it be deaths or unemployment, you come become numb to these numbers a little bit. Uh, but then when you think about each one of those numbers is a job, it's pretty mind boggling, is it? Yeah, I, I don't think I've gotten to the numb part of it, to be Is honest. Right? No, I, it's still because it affects people that I know really personally. I don't feel like a week goes by that I'm not hearing from someone that I know and know well that this is affecting them or their spouse or their brother or their parent. Um, yeah, it, it it hits pretty close to home for me. 
I was going to ask you that. So without giving names, obviously, or personal stories, you are hearing of a lot of people, whether it be in your church or your sphere, you're hearing this kind of in your sphere of people. Oh, yeah. I mean, USA Today did an article that said something like almost 20 percent of American adults lost a job or saw their hours cut uh, since all of this sort of took around. So 20 percent. I mean, the the statistical odds of knowing someone well that maybe isn't even maybe not totally unemployed, but certainly had their hours cut to a frightening degree. Um, I, I The other thing that I find really fascinating and also heartbreaking is that it says low-income Americans were hit hardest. Yeah. Of people working in February, nearly 40% of those with household incomes below $40,000 reported a job loss in March. Uh, that is a whole other sort of like systemic terror that I, I think isn't talked about enough because, you know, a lot of us, I mean, we talk about being in the same boat. We really aren't in the same boat. The meme that I saw was we're in the same storm, but we're in different boats. And some people mm. are experiencing this job loss uh, in a much, much different way. And I think for Christ followers in particular, it's a really, really important thing for us to keep at the forefront of our conversations. Absolutely. So 4.2 million in California, uh, almost 2 million in Florida, over 2 million in uh, New York. Uh, over 1 million in New Jersey, your home state of Michigan, almost 1.4 million. I mean, that is it, just to get your mind around those numbers is unbelievable. Uh, and, and I wanted to bring that up and also uh, discuss how you said, you know, we all know people who are going through this. Um, how would you say, give a word of of comfort, of hope to somebody uh, who has lost their job. And then I want to take it to how do we comfort those? Maybe we haven't lost our job, but somebody we know is losing our job. But maybe start with the person who has lost their job and they're really uh, searching and not knowing what's coming next. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know that I know how to offer anything of substantive hope other than like you're not alone. And yeah. the church, the big C church at, at its best is coming alongside people and communities and families who are in need. And, you know, whether you're someone who lost a job or you're someone who's a part of a church, I think now is the time for action. Now is the time to put our money where our mouth is for church leaders mm -hmm. in particular. And I've talked a lot about our community cares effort and, and I'll give the website again. You can go to communitychristian.org slash cares. If you're someone in need or someone who would like to give back, either end of that, um, we've made a lot of opportunities available. And the stories coming out of that have been remarkable. But I, I think for someone who's maybe listening right now and they're uh, panicked or they're despondent, like one, I would say, bring all of that to God. We don't have to yeah. pretend that our fear or panic or sadness doesn't exist because he's already in the midst of that. But also, I find that a lot of people sometimes maybe don't reach out because of their own pride or their own embarrassment. There, there is absolutely nothing to be embarrassed about in this. And I think that is sometimes the biggest hurdle is simply raising a hand and saying, we're in trouble. Like we, we really need help right now and reach out to a church, reach out you know, to a community, re reach out to family and friends. This is, this is not a time I think for sort of the stoic, never let them see a sweat kind of mentality. Yeah. Like we, we need each other. And I, I would encourage every end of that spectrum um, to put down any of the pretense that like, Oh, well that would feel weak to ask for help or that would feel odd to offer help. I think, yeah. I think we just need to, we need to get past that. 
Yeah. And with like the minute we have left, how about to the person who hasn't lost their job, but friend, family member, church, uh, somebody in their church has lost a job and they're trying to be a support and a hope. What are what are some of the things that you think would be hopeful and some things that aren't very helpful in this time? Well, I think sometimes what we tend to do when somebody else in our life is hurting is we still end up doing most of the talking, which I don't know is always Mm. helpful. I think it's it maybe seems really obvious, but it's easy to miss that when we really want to help people, it helps to actually know how they need help to ask and like honestly just listen. Um, And we know not everyone that's listening to the show is a part of a church in any capacity, but churches I've been hearing all sorts of wonderful stories of churches stepping up. Even if you're not a part of a church community, find one that's near you. Uh, churches are poised and mobilized right now to care for people, to come alongside people. But if someone close to you uh, actually really is hurting, I think one of the one of the most important things we can do is to give them space to grieve and to actually voice yeah. their concerns and then to let them know like, hey, whatever I can do and don't overpromise, but whatever I can do, like I want to be that for you and and really mean it and really follow through. I think that's really important. That's uh, really well put, man. Very well pastorally, uh, good pastoral advice there. So uh, coming up next, optimism fatigue. What does that look like and how do we avoid it? That's coming up next here on the Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday afternoon. Uh, you could continue the conversation on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. There we post all our articles, ones we discuss, uh, things we don't discuss. Ian tends to put really funny stuff up there. Like explain the one that you put up there today about how to close a cereal box. That was random. And that it's the most random ones you put up there that get the absolute most traction from our listeners. Yeah, I don't know that there's much to describe after what you just said, Brian. It's how to properly close a cereal box. And if you, uh, if you want to know more, you got to go to the Facebook page. Yeah. I, people were amazed by it though. I'm always amazed by people, by what amazes people. So that was it. You're telling me that, uh, didn't, so you that can, didn't amaze you? Not really. <laughs> oh. It was interesting, I suppose. Uh, but you can find that on our Facebook page, the common good radio show, go to Twitter and Instagram at common good talk. Uh, you could get online and find our show at 1160 hope.com. And uh, the podcast, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. Uh, We are grateful for those of you uh, who do that. So I stumbled upon a blog today uh, called thirdwaylife.blog, blogspot, uh, by a guy by the name of Jeff Stark. And it had a really interesting premise, this premise of optimism fatigue. He says this. I write this for the sake of leaders. You're paying an emotional toll amid this crisis that perhaps you are unaware. It's insidious cost that sneaks up on us, catches us off guard and amplifies the intensity of nearly every public action. We take every post, every public word we speak. It looms in the background of nearly every meeting, conversation, phone call and email. It's born of the expectation uh, that come with our roles. It's the unspoken expectation of those we lead. The emotional cost, he says, is optimism fatigue. Uh, he says leadership doesn't afford one the luxury of losing their bearing amid a crisis. Uh, and he goes on to talk about this. Uh, a, have you ever heard of this phrase, optimism fatigue? And uh, B, what's the danger, do you think, as just people in general, but leaders as well, start to get this optimism fatigue? Well, I mean, I think the dangers are as unique as 
people are. I don't think everyone will experience the fatigue the same way. Some people are maybe reading it or hearing it thinking, oh, I've never had optimism fatigue. I'm not an optimistic person. I, I, so I think this isn't certainly something that everyone is uh, affected by in the same way. I also think there's an interesting counterbalance. And, I, and again, I think Jeff is brilliant. He's got some really wonderful insight here. Part of what is tricky, especially where everything is digital, is that I do think that people tend to sniff out like false optimism or spin right. or like perpetual positivity. Um, that doesn't mean like, well, then we should all just sort of become Eeyores so that people will believe us. But I think there is also, and this again is tricky and depends a lot on the leaders kind of wiring and the community's DNA, but the willingness to own up to when stuff isn't going well or not as we thought or planned or hoped for, um, I'm finding more and more how much people resonate with that level of like vulnerability and authenticity. Yeah. Even if like, Hey, uh, it's not an F, but it's a, it's a C minus right now. And here's why, and here's what we're doing about it. I think, I think people, obviously not everybody, but I think do people do more and more resonate with that. And uh, I think that that's, that's an important balance to try to strike. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I even find myself, I'm generally an optimistic person and I haven't lost my optimism, but I would say, especially as, you know, this drags on longer and then seems like it's going to go on a lot longer and some of the newness of it's worn off. I do find myself uh, kind of what he says, right? He says it makes the normal workday seem exhausting. It tempts us to become resentful, uh, wishing we didn't have to constantly uh, talk them into talk to others into remaining hopeful uh, this kind of optimism fatigue. And so he's going to give five things that might be helpful if you're feeling that way. Uh, but I think the first part here is just to acknowledge it's a thing, right? Like uh, I think Ian makes a great point about not pretending to be optimistic, but instead to realize why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? Uh, what saps it? So why don't we work our way through this list? Sure. Uh, th these are five things that might be helpful. He says, uh, in the midst of optimism fatigue, I'll start. Number one, reclaim safe space. Find other leaders who are carrying similar weight and allow that to be a safe space to vent, share, and articulate the deep fears and concern. That's really good. Who are the people, uh, for lack of a better word, that you can dump on who would understand uh, kind of what you're going through? Well, and I think that's something that people should be doing all the time, not even just in the midst of a crisis. That is one of the weird silver lining benefits of a crisis is it does kind of elevate your need for it. But I think this should be that should be a 24 seven kind of thing. Number two, yep. Uh, yep. restore margin. Crisis is all consuming, or at least it can feel as though it is. When's the last time you took a real day off? I mean, a full day without responding to the demands of others. If that is mm. impossible in this current season, find some margin of disconnection and clearly communicate it to your organization. Every Friday from three until Saturday morning, I'm unavailable, which again, he's talking about Sabbath. He's talking about, not yeah. just, and not just in a day sense, but I would add like even in a, um, in a hour by hour sense, like, Hey, this is dinner time with my family and I won't be responding to phone calls. And that's just the way that it needs to be in order for us to maintain our sanity. I think those things are really important. Yeah. It's very interesting. As you pointed out, these five are all things that, that, would be helpful in normal, quote unquote, normal rhythms of life. But in things like a pandemic where things are different, it just kind of raises the bar for them. So number three, resist the urge to react. In a crisis, you will see some stuff on social media. Not every post requires an action from you. Sometimes people are just saying stuff. Right. They're right. venting their fears because they don't know where else to say it. Let it be. 
uh, private message them and tell them you're praying for them or thinking of them in these difficult times. Avoid the useless argument. Uh, resist the urge to react. I heard a crazy story yesterday. Um, I don't remember where I heard it of a guy when when uh, uh, when he comes up against Twitter trolls, uh, people trolling him on his when he posts, uh, he tries to find their address and he sends him a cake pot, a cake pop uh, from Starbucks with a nice note <laughs> just to kind of say, hey, I'm praying for you. Kind of oh. crazy. Oh, nice. All right. Number four is uh, exactly what I was saying. Not exactly, but in the same vein, retain authenticity. Nothing I've stated in this article suggests that leaders should be inauthentic. Know thyself as a leader. Allow the people you lead to know you well. Authenticity doesn't mean we verbally vomit on the people we lead. However, a leader can state, like you, I do have deep concerns and questions about our future. One can name emotional proximity to the people. Empathy connects us and keeps us grounded in our true self. And I think, again, that is to the discernment of every leader. You know, you need to have people that you can actually trust. But sometimes, like he's saying, uh, people within the organization, it's a little trickier to be completely vulnerable in those environments. And that's why I think like what he's saying in number one, reclaiming safe space is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And number five, uh, these are things that are a list of five things helpful when you're kind of feeling that optimism fatigue. He says, recognize the warning signs. Uh, as a leader, you aren't in the face of crisis exempt from depression, burnout and anxiety. Stay aware and be honest with yourself and with others. Do you have a therapist or a counselor? Do your loved ones understand the emotional toll? Are you isolating? Are you coping with some form of compulsive behavior? When's the last time you've seen your physician recognize the warning signs uh, that you, quite frankly, would probably point out in other people in your organization or in your family, but realizing whether you lead or not, you're not exempt from these. So uh, he closes out this uh, by saying optimism fatigue in the face of crisis is real. You're carrying a burden. You are not alone. It is time to take action. I find that list and that overall blog post uh, really helpful. How about yourself? Yeah, again, I I, uh, I just think Jeff is brilliant. And part of what he says here at the beginning that we skipped, he says, being a leader doesn't exempt you from the same insecurities and anxieties that others experience. That may be a word just for a leader right now to remember. Sometimes right. there's a sense of like, wow, but I'm in charge, though. I'm the guy, girl at top. Like, I have to really have it together. And obviously, there's a different level and weight of responsibility. But to also give yourself space to sometimes not have the answers or to feel the same weight of uncertainty. I think owning yeah. some of those things and being honest about them is just as important as anything else on the list, to be honest. Absolutely. Well, coming up next uh, from Christians Against Poverty, Simon Wills is going to join us. We're excited to talk to Simon again here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, somebody that we met uh, a couple months ago, uh, Simon Wills from Christians Against Poverty, an organization that we really believe in and we want to see be as successful as possible. And we're grateful that Simon is joining us again today. Simon, how are you doing? I am good. Thank you. Thank you, Brian, Ian, for having us back. And um, yeah, I think it was right at the beginning when the pandemic was hitting and we were kind of in the midst of trying to work out what, what was going on. And, and yet by God's grace, we're still here, aren't we? And uh, yeah, and his kingdom is still going. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you remind our audience about CAP against Christians Against Poverty? What's it that you guys do uh, as an organization? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, we, as you say, Christians Against Poverty, uh, we've been going about 23, 24 years around the world. Uh, and then amazingly, we believe God brought us to the U.S. last year. Uh, we're, we're locally based here in Chicagoland. We have our head office here. We've got an American board, despite the fact that I am British. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, we really believe for such a time as this. So what we do is we equip local churches across the Chicagoland area uh, to really reach out to desperate families and particularly around financial crisis. So we mm. have a really simple money management tool, which helps people just adjust their income. Uh, and we also do our debt help centers where we are reaching out to desperate unchurched families main, mainly, but some Christians, uh, and really helping them through uh, where they've uh, found themselves in crisis debt and all the struggles that that brings, all the desperation and mm-hmm. the relationship breakdown, the suicidal thoughts, and we're bringing them mm. through to health and freedom. And it's the Church of Jesus Christ that is really doing that. That's awesome. And we, we believe in CAP so much at Community, actually, that we've decided to partner with Christians Against Poverty. And at the top of this hour, we were talking about the job market in the United States in particular. How, how have those numbers affected or informed uh, what Christians Against Poverty is about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a privilege to be working with you guys at Community and yeah, what an amazing church. And yeah, um, yeah. The the job figures. I mean, you've you've probably talked a little bit about some of the figures that they're astounding in one sense, aren't they? Some mm-hmm. say that ten years of job gains wiped out in just four weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, is it thirty three million was the last uh, figure I heard? It's probably gone up since then. The, the scariest bit is probably the fact that they're saying forty percent of those job losses could be permanent. Right. Um, what, what we're seeing and, and how we're kind of mobilizing with the local churches that we we are seeing that there are millions of American families who have, have obviously suffered a, uh, an economic shock. And where the church through CAP is stepping in is that we are through our money management, what we're doing is helping them adjust their finances. Because don't forget, it's not just the unemployed, it's the underemployed. So another huge amount of American families are not not unemployed, but their income has drastically changed. Uh, so we as the Church of Jesus Christ are able to intervene, help them get a, a handle on their finances uh, and cut back where they can. Uh, but sadly, for many of those families, uh, it won't be enough, which we're, we're really excited then in one sense around our debt help centers, which are, are going to be there for them in the next few months when it just gets really, really desperate. Hmm. Absolutely. And so playing off that, what are some specific ways that CAP helps people who find themselves unemployed, find themselves uh, in these uh, kind of financial dire times? Yeah, that's it. Well, with the one thing we're doing, we're helping them adjust their budgets and financially. But where where we visit, and again, it's local churches that are equipped by Christians Against Poverty to visit these families. Uh, The way we start is we we start with a kind of triage service. The first thing we want to know with the family is how are you doing? What's the immediate needs? Can we fill your cupboards with food? Do you need furniture? Do you need some power switching back on? And, and, and how's your relationship? So we start at that kind of level of family care and holistic care around these desperate, desperate people. Uh, and then we move on then to actually look at the financial situation. We unpick absolutely everything. We take this huge overview of where the family or individual is at. Uh, and then with CAP, we've got this amazing professional thing called credit counseling. We're certified credit counselors, but we do it and, and deliver it completely free and a gift from the local mm. church to that person. 
And by the way, we can do all of that because of our amazing, wonderful supporters. And mm-hmm. uh, we're going to be talking today about how you can get involved in delivering this to families. Uh, and then we go back and we, we deliver a plan to see that family put back on their feet. Mm-hmm. And we walk with them then until they're debt free. We negotiate with creditors. We get them off their backs. We do all of that. Uh, but again, what, what I love about it and why I'm passionate is that it's Chicago land churches that are, are delivering it. They're the front line. They're the face of this thing. Uh, And it's just that 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 really delivers a quite unique solution to people that, let's be frank, are really struggling right now. And this this is what they need. Well, and you and you teed it up perfectly. My my guess is, and we have a pretty rich diversity of people listening right now. I'm wondering, could you speak to two camps in particular about how they can actually get involved? One, the individual. What can an individual person listening thinking, gosh, I've never heard of you or I have, but now I'm really convinced. How can I get involved? And then also, what would you say to people who are leaders, whether they lead teams or a business or they lead a church or they're part of a board? Uh, what are some ways that maybe they can also get involved in the great work that you guys are doing? That That's, yeah, exactly. Great question there. Um, so we, we, we're appealing to, to people that are listening today uh, and we are saying, can you help us support some of these families? So it, it costs us about $30 a month to put one of these families through our system on a long-term basis. So that includes all that upfront support, all that holistic help, uh, right through to the credit to work and lifting them out of poverty. So for $30 a month, you can put one desperate family through CAPS debt help system. $60 a month is two, and $100 a month is one of our uh, vision sponsors. Um, so that that's really what you can do to get involved. And, and we're praying that there's some people out there that are, uh, seeing the need and just saying, how can I support families locally that are, uh, are desperately in need? And yet I want to empower a church to do it. So it's an amazing way to put money into church and outreach. And uh, so that's our appeal today. And every dollar that you give, by the way, is match funded. So dollar for dollar. Uh, so if you fancy doing that and where we really encourage you to pick up the phone, our number is 888-444-9185. And that's triple eight, triple four, nine, one, eight, five. Or of course you can get online and it's just cap 1160.com. So that that's individuals. We'd love to hear from you. And if you want prayer or if you want support yourself, please just feel free to call us. We want to be there for people. Uh, and then you asked for churches and, and yeah, we, we really want to see churches mobilized at this point. And as it's often said, the local church is the hope of the world when it's mobilized and we're all about equipping and serving you guys. And that's what I love about you, Brian, Ian, as pastors and your heart to actually get into action and, and what you do through your work in your local churches as well as the radio station. Uh, so for, for guys like you and for people that are involved in church leadership and want to do ministry, just head to our website. It's capamerica.org. So that's capamerica.org. Uh, and you'll find lots of information on there about how to get involved. Uh, but I'd just say call the number as well. So that's 888-444-9185. And we'd just love to chat to you today. And Simon, we love we love uh, being able to be a partner with you guys. And with like the last minute we have here, uh, to those people out there who maybe have lost their job, yeah. uh, they're really struggling. I know that's your passion to see those people uh, in that situation find hope. Could you just speak a word of hope to people right now who find themselves in that situation? Absolutely, and uh, yeah, I think 
our our heart for you guys is first of all it's not your fault and and when you're in financial crisis or difficulty uh the the shame and the blame can just really cripple a person and really i would just speak over you and say god loves you uh, there is always hope our, one of our strap lines is always hope your situation is not beyond help there is help out there and yeah we we're here for you so again if you want to give us a call we'd love to chat to you if you just need some support uh, that's what your listeners are enabling us to do so we'd love to be there for them that's awesome well, that, that's great that's uh christians against poverty simon wills uh joining us this won't be the last time you join us so we look forward to the next time but simon thanks for again taking the time to be on the show today we really appreciate it thank you guys bless you likewise you thank you you too. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today on this Thursday afternoon. Uh, as always, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, online at 1160hope.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And as always, find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, very grateful for these uh, for the many people who listen via podcast, especially these days where a lot of us aren't in our cars doing our normal uh, radio listening habits. Uh, we've seen a lot more of you on the podcast, and we're grateful for that. So subscribe, rate, and review. Let other people know about it. And, uh, yeah, we're glad to have you joining us. Uh, a new article posted today at Christianity Today. Christianity Today has been doing a great job throughout this uh, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, an article posted, an interview posted today, the moral order of the world points to God. We're going to have uh, a conversation around that interview. But first, Ian is going to tell us uh, about Thrivent. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Thrivent. I've been a Thrivent member for seven or eight years. You can learn more if you want at Thrivent.com. I highly encourage you to do so. Also, if you're looking for a career change, Thrivent.com slash careers is a good place to look. They're a wonderful Fortune 500 nonprofit that's been around for more than 100 years. And one of the reasons I'm so grateful for them is that they also understand like a Christian perspective when it comes to money, which as a lot of us know, is not everyone. So their partnership, not only in my own personal journey, but also their capacity to give back is enormous. And so one of the things they've been doing is providing free webinars. And we've mentioned a bunch of them on the show. We've been posting links on the Facebook page. You can learn more about those at their Facebook page, at our Facebook page. You can go to thrivent.com slash Chicagoland for specific things happening in this area here. And uh, at the very least, highly, highly, highly encourage you to go check them out. Absolutely. So uh, again, at Christianity Today, an interview about the moral order of the world points to God. Uh, it's an interview around a new book called The Moral Argument, A History by David Baggett, professor of philosophy at Liberty, and Jerry Walls, professor, professor of philosophy at uh, Houston Baptist University. Uh, and so let me just read the first paragraph. And I'd, be, I'd be interested to know uh, if you agree with this. <clears throat> as far back as the Apostle Paul's famous speech on Mars Hill, Christian thinkers have been contending for the credibility of the faith among contemporary evangelicals. The so-called moral argument for God's existence is one of the most popular. Although the argument comes in a variety of forms, it draws on one central idea. If you're a moral realist rather than a moral relativist, uh, 
who believes in objective good and evil, then philosophically speaking, those ethical standards have to be anchored in a divine source. In other words, moral order doesn't make sense without God. Let me read that sentence again. Moral order doesn't make sense without God. What do you think about that idea? Uh, I've heard that argument before. I don't know necessarily that I totally buy it wholesale, but I'd be, I'd be curious to know. I mean, you, you picked the article, so I'm guessing maybe, maybe for you, that is a, that's a convincing argument. Uh, I've always learned this one uh, from early on in apologetics. And uh, I, uh, I think there's something to it. Like where, where does our morality come from? Where's our moral compass come from where, where this starts to go off the tracks. And this isn't what these authors are suggesting, but for me, uh, where this starts to go off the tracks is when we say, therefore, the people who follow God most closely are the most moral all the time. Right. right. Uh, we, we have certainly seen those not go together. Baggett goes on to say the world has moral features to it that are best accounted for by theism. What gives moral duties their authority? What gives human beings their essential dignity and inherent worth? We can only answer these questions, argues Baggett, with direct reference to God's morally perfect nature and commands. Uh, and then they go on to interview Baggett. And so... um is this something you grew up learning, though? Is this something that, whether in your church upbringing or schools, this was one of the arguments for God that you were normally uh, given? You know, I can't remember anything specifically, but I imagine that's probably something that I had heard before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think people who are not God, uh, who don't believe in God, atheists, what would they say to this? Where Where would they see the error in a statement like this? Because clearly they'd see an error in this statement, but... Uh, where where do you think they would find the error? Oh, I I, I don't know that I I've never been an atheist before. Um, <laughs> but you played one on TV, right? I I also did not do that. I uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not I'm not quite sure what they we should have an atheist on the show. That would be fun. That would be fun. Uh, in the interview, they say you draw a connection in the book from the moral argument to the life of Fred Rogers, and they said, "Can you elaborate on that?" He said, "Absolutely. I love Fred Rogers. Always have." I was in his original demographic when his show went national in 1968. Uh, the remarkable documentary about him a few years ago made me realize that so much of what he did and stood for is at the heart of the moral apologetic enterprise. The dignity he recognized in people, the empathy he cultivated for the suffering, his care for the most vulnerable, his desire to touch both heads and hearts, his unyielding trust in God's goodness and his invitation to love one's neighbor as, him, as oneself. In all these ways and others, he embodied so much of what moral apologetics at its best is all about. He says, especially in our cultural moment, we need more people like Fred to make goodness attractive. I can hardly wait uh, to meet him in heaven. And then they go on to say, <clears throat> excuse me, as a scholar, how do you see students and others engage with the moral argument? He said, it's probably been most gratifying to see my doctoral students learn to think about the moral argument in both academic rigor and eminently practical ways. Many of them are pastors, so they bring a practitioner's heart to their academic pursuits. Um, he says, and then he goes on to give a story about the moral argument being persuasive. Uh, do you find the moral argument, Ian, to be persuasive? Or to put it another way, if you were sharing about the existence of God to somebody who didn't believe, would do you think you would use the moral argument? Uh, I, honestly, I don't. I'm not even really 
that big a fan of apologetics in the first place, to be honest. Oh, speak to that. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't really see much of that being modeled even necessarily in the life and ministry of Jesus or the early church. I, I feel like there is a declaration of proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand as an invitation to participate then in the work that God is doing in the world. Jesus himself says, do you want to know whether or not my teachings are legitimate? Live them out and you decide for yourself. It's, it's much, it feels like much more of a participatory invitation to the kingdom of God than it is trying to make a philosophical argument for like the existence of a deity. Interesting. And so um, is there a danger for you then in the philosophical argument, or is that just not your style? Is this a stylistic thing or do you go, no, actually I don't think it's a helpful thing. And we need to get back to maybe what you said you see in the early church and in the gospels. Mm, no, I don't think I would say either of those things. I, I I like thinking about things philosophically. I think part of what apologetics and a lot of apologetic training tends to do, though, is it makes people out to be arguments to be one. Uh, mm. It often kind of thrives on setting up straw men that we can knock down in order to convince people of some sort of rational argument. But, you know, we also are sitting here today because of massive intellectual, scholarly, academic juggernauts, you know, and we're sitting on the shoulders of some of those giants. So I don't, I, I think they're both certainly valuable to some degree. I just think that some of how apologetics has been couched or framed or presented or handed to a lot of Western evangelicalism is is in some cases maybe maybe even doing more harm than good, to be honest. Oh, that's really helpful. I'd love to know what other people think about that. We'll post this up, this interview up uh, at our Facebook page and uh, wondering what you think about what Ian said there or uh, about the article as a whole. Well, coming up next, uh, we've talked a lot in this coronavirus pandemic about uh, what have the students lost. And uh, a quick article at CNN written by a high school senior who said the biggest lesson that she has learned in COVID-19. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss what effect is COVID-19 having on graduating high school seniors? And then how do you decide if your church is successful? We're going to discuss those next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, uh, on Twitter and on Instagram at Common Good Talk. Find us online at 1160hope.com. And as always, find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review. And thanks in advance uh, for those who do that. Uh, as we continue to process all that's going on uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the stay-at-home order, everything, churches, schools, everything still kind of being shut down. Uh, one of the great uh, struggles out there right now is for students, especially seniors in high school, seniors in college, as they miss their graduation. And there was a very interesting opinion piece written on CNN.com uh, by Eliza Shapiro, and Eliza Shapiro, she is a senior in high school in New York, uh, in New York City, or maybe in just the state of New York. And uh, she wrote an opinion piece 
about what it what it is like being a senior in high school. Before we read some of this, Ian, you and I have discussed this a little bit. Um, what do you think? What kind of things do you expect to hear from seniors who uh, who go through this COVID nineteen process? They've they've missed their graduation. What kinds of things do you expect that they have learned from this? And then we'll read what she's learned. Uh, I think some of them might be surprised at how bummed they are, or maybe not. They will. I think some of their parents will. I think sometimes young people, particularly those like in junior high and high school right now, are so categorized as you know, digital natives that for them having to live in a predominantly digital reality, I think the assumption is like, oh, they're probably fine with that. That's probably not that big a deal. I think that's wrong. I don't, I don't, I'm right. not hearing from a lot of students that are like, well, no big deal. I just, I didn't really want to go anyway. I'm sure there are people that didn't want to go that are relieved. And there are people that, you know, when we were in high school that felt the same way, but I think the blanket assumption that young people are not as upset because they're way more comfortable being online than maybe their parents are, I think is, uh, I think is wrong. But that is actually a very much what she says. I want you to hear what Eliza Shapiro says. She says, as a second semester high school senior, I was expecting a season of milestones, but not quite like this. A few weeks ago, I turned 18 and celebrated with friends and family on zoom. A few days later, I got into my first college choice and videoed my reaction as I opened my virtual acceptance letter. A few days after that, uh, I heard New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announce that all New York schools will remain closed for the rest of the academic year. So I guess I'll be spending my last weeks of high school in bed with my laptop and I won't be shaking my principal's hand as he presents me with a diploma that symbolizes 13 years of my life. These past few months of staying home and social distancing have been unusual, but also eye-opening. The people I'm used to seeing in person every day are suddenly on my screens instead. People of all ages have been feeling a sense of dislocation and dependence on technology during, during this time, but my generation is in a unique position. Uh, here's exactly what you just said. Many people assume Gen Zers prefer everyday interactions mediated by screens. Oh. We've been using modern technology since before we could walk. So naturally, we would not be as affected by social distancing, whether it be Snapchat, FaceTime or TikTok. My age group has been actively choosing to communicate digitally long before COVID-19 forced us to. But even if we are digital natives, the assumption that we're comfortable living a fully digital life is wrong. We value in-person interactions more than many may think. And now that this privilege has been taken from us, it's just plain obvious. Mm. She goes on to say studies have shown that social interaction is beneficial to our physical and mental health and that relationships are particularly important in adolescence. Social isolation, by contrast, has a negative impact on brain development and behavioral patterns and can weaken communities and even our democracy. These are not surprising facts. However, before this pandemic, many people my age thought we could fulfill this need for human connection by communicating with others just on line. So I'll pause there. Uh, you kind of nailed it, man, on what she was <laughs> going to say. Uh, she says people from the other generations think that we prefer online, but in for, in reality, uh, it's been her greatest learning. She's going to go on to say her greatest lesson that she and her classmates have learned uh, is that they're longing to be back together and how much they miss each other, even though they're seeing each other on their screens all the time. Well, and again, she's one voice, right? I always think it's yeah. a, a little bit of a sweeping statement. Anytime any person 
attempts to speak for their entire demographic, whether it's age or gender, race. That's there's obviously nuance and a myriad of responses. I'm sure of it, but I do think not to not to parlay this into church talk. I do think sometimes we see this in church world though, where you have people in their 40s, 50s, 60s making decisions about what they think people in their teens, 20s, and 30s actually want. And sometimes it seems like the church gets it quite wrong. Not always. And that's, again, people in every category are as diverse as anyone else is. But it does sometimes feel like there there are temptations to say, like in the case of this story, well, I'm sure they're fine because they were already in love with digital anyway. The other part of me wonders... Like, does she long for the in-person simply because it was taken away or was that already there? You know, like the old adage about wanting what you can't have. I think that could be in play a little bit, but all that to say, and again, this is based on nothing. This is just my gut. I I think people of every generation, of every geography, every theology, every philosophy, there, there is a longing for connectedness with other people. That's just an incarnational reality, I think. And I, uh, I do wonder what, what harm we possibly do as adults by maybe sometimes downplaying or diminishing what it is that young people are feeling right now, right. because they might not have the categories to articulate it, but that doesn't mean they're feeling it any less. And I think we have to, we have to be really careful there. I know anecdotally in our house, just having three teenagers slash uh, preteens that that's what they miss. It's what they've begun even expressing how much they miss just being physically with their friends. Right. And uh, being able to not have these, you know, six feet apart, you can't do this, you can't do that, but uh, to be physically with their friends in your own life. Do you think uh, you and I've expressed over and over again, how much we can't wait if say church to be with our church or with our family, you know, your extended family or with whatever Um, I've begun wondering when will that wear off? So we go back, we're all together, whether it's six months from now, a year, whatever, however amount of time. Do you think there will be, if you had to guess, will there be a long lasting nature to that where we'll keep being like, hey, remember, we couldn't be together. It's so good. Or will human nature take over and we'll just kind of get back into our rhythms and maybe take for granted uh, that physical proximity with each other? Oh, yeah, I think we're all to some degree in danger of eventually taking it for granted. The only difference, not the only difference, a main difference in my mind is that this re-entrance into being together is not going to be like flipping a switch. It's going to be this really odd strain. Like I think handshakes and hugs are going to look different for decades. I don't, I don't think it's going to be a, well, after a year of everything kind of be, then we'll sort of be back to, no, I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. So I think we'll have uh, regular reminders that something has changed and those reminders may be fewer and further between as time progresses. But I, my guess is though that even like a couple of years from now, you know, we'll see someone that we hadn't seen in a few years, not realizing, Oh, they're still not comfortable with hugs and it'll remind us yeah. again of the thing we went through back in 2020. And then that will, you know, in some way maybe elevate our awareness that, wow, it's good to be together at all. Even though, you know, I just think we're going to have all these odd reminders coming at really odd times right? or quite some time after this. Yeah. Do you think you'll be uh, he- hesitant to shake a hand or hug a neck or will it be more playing off what you think other people are comfortable with in that moment? Yeah. I'm usually trying to play off what other people, I mean, I'm a big hugger, um, Me too. But Me too. having really little kids certainly has elevated my desire to be cautious, I guess. So 
you know, that's that's anyone's guess. I've thought about that a lot. Like the people that you really care about and miss, though, that tends to go hand in hand with really wanting to hug them, really wanting to, hand, right. you know, shake their hand and just be with them. So that that is going to, I think, be more difficult than I currently realize. And that that is a uh, that is hard to really wrap my brain around. I'm just going to wear one of those Halloween dinosaur outfits where you're completely covered. That's and, smart. That's a good idea. Uh, that's very that's reasonable. Be the you, you should preach in I'll hug everybody in that. <laughs> she ends her article here. It's really well written for a high school senior. Uh, she wrote, we must not only return to our previous way of living, but place an even greater emphasis on community, real life engagement, and the now rare pleasure of human interaction off a screen. So that's at CNN.com. We've got that up at our Facebook page written by a high school senior giving a glimpse into her, uh, how COVID-19, the things she has learned going through this. Well, coming up next at the Gospel Coalition, I want to have a conversation about how do you know uh, if your church is successful and is that even changing in the midst of all we're going through right now? That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. As always, continue the conversation at Facebook. That's uh, The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, the Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk and Instagram as well. Uh, 1160hope.com. There you can find old shows uh, and also our podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review uh, Alexa can help you find our podcast. I think it was last week. Ian even said, just go out and yelled into the ether. I believe there you will find our podcast as well. Three, that was three weeks ago, Brian. It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> it's all the same Touché. now. Touché. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we are grateful for those of you uh, who do listen to the podcast. So uh, Trevin Wax at Christian at uh, Gospel Coalition. Uh, talks a little bit about what makes a church uh, successful traditionally and uh, how has that changed. So we're going to talk about that blog here in a moment. But before we do that, Ian has some things to share about a valued group that we love called Thrivent. Yeah, Thrivent yeah, Financial, Financial. Been around a long time. Fortune 500 non-for-profit. I've been a Thrivent member for like seven or eight years. You can learn more at Thrivent.com. Highly encourage you to do that. I haven't mentioned this part a whole lot, but they also offer like all sorts of free training and webinars and resources and just a whole heap of things to help you be wiser with money. But it's also a Christian organization, which I really appreciate because all of that kind of wisdom and insight is sort of wrapped in some Christian packaging. But also if you're looking for a career change though, thriving.com slash careers is where to go. And uh, I know a lot of people in this time of pandemic are looking for a job or looking for a change of jobs and you don't even need to have a background in finance you just like working with people, highly encourage you to check that out. Plus, they're hosting a bunch of uh, really wonderful free webinars, and we've been posting those on our Facebook page. You can learn more at their Facebook page or our Facebook page or thrivent.com slash Chicagoland for all that local stuff that's happening right here. Absolutely. So again, at the Gospel Coalition, Trevin Wax uh, says uh, wrote a blog called this, Blowing Up the Three Bs. Let me start it for us. He says, what are the metrics for a church's success? And that's a great question that every church has to ask itself. What are your metrics? What determines your success? He says, for decades now, pastors have joked about the three Bs, buildings, uh, bodies, and budgets. How many people attend on Sundays? What's the state of the building program or facility? Are there enough funds coming in to keep everything going? The more evangelistically minded at a fourth B, baptisms. 
It's hard to overestimate, he says, the importance church leaders have placed on these metrics to the point that as long as attendance holds steady while the buildings are well maintained and the offerings aren't in free fall, the church looks good from the outside. Programs continue. Funds come in. Occasionally, one might ask harder questions. But for the most part, these bees offer a metric for a church to use engaging their growth or decline. Let me stop there for a sec. Uh, honestly, one of the best uh, challenges I ever heard around this before I'd ever really thought about it was at the Exponential Conference down in Florida a couple years ago. And uh, I'm familiar. Dave Ferguson, uh, your coworker, <laughs> my, uh, my boss. Your boss, thank you. I was trying to remember the leadership structure <laughs> on the fly. Uh, Dave Ferguson gave a talk uh, basically about what's your scorecard? Oh, your scoreboard. What is your scoreboard? And I remember that being such a basic thought that I hadn't ever thought of. Like, what is our metric for success? And that his point was, when you don't actually give thought to it, you will always go back to bodies, buildings, and budgets. Like, that will be it. And uh, I just remember being really uh, challenged by it. So before we get into Wack, uh, Trevin Wax's thoughts, uh, I'm sure you've, you're very familiar with these three Bs. But why do you think it's these uh, three Bs that are what most churches uh, use to determine success? Uh, well, I, I think it's I think yeah. it's because of the most obvious. That's that's probably the, the simplest answer. It's the most they tend to be the most urgent, the most visible and the most obvious. And I don't even think and Wax doesn't go on to to quite say this. I don't think they're bad metrics either. Like either. I've no. also certainly met with leaders that are like, we don't even look at the budget. You're like, that's not good either. That's not good. <laughs> yes. That's not good stewardship or your buildings falling apart. Like these things have value for sure. But I think sometimes we can get their priority out of whack, which is probably yep. what he's going to say here. But yeah, my guess is those three B's have become so universally popular because they're like, what, at least in the West, I should clarify that. I think a lot of what we're talking about here is more exclusively the West, the Western's way of looking at church than than I would say globally. Not that people across the globe don't also look at these three Bs, but I think it's a very, very unique priority order for us here in the United States. Yeah, you are right. So, so often pastors will swing the pendulum the other way and go, well, we're not going to count anything. Like, we don't do anything. I remember Craig Grishel saying that they count everything at their church, right? At Life Church. He's like, we count everything. But the question is, uh, what do you do with those numbers? Like, what do they do? They uh, mean that you've been a success? Do they mean that you're winning? Uh, or what do you use them for? Um, what do you think off the top of your head before, again, we get into his, what may be a community or what in your own mind are better metrics that leads you to whether to go, you know, the church I'm a part of is quote unquote a success right now. What, what are those some metrics you might use? I mean, I like the metrics that we use at community when we talk about three C Christ followers. You know, the first mm-hmm. C is celebrate. And we're talking about celebration services are our people. And we're talking about, you know, at an individual level and at a church level. Are they are they committing to celebrating together? We believe the gathered people is really important. Uh, the connecting piece has to do with small groups. Are they actually Going deeper, I think that's where real life change happens. You know, we'll often say that life is lived better in circles than in rows, that, you know, the the thing on Sunday is great, but it's in a circle in the context of a small group where we really kind of get into the weeds. That's where formation happens. That's where we can really love each other and our neighbor. And then the contribute piece, which is sort of a double whammy. It is the tithing conversation. That's part of it. But it is also like serving and giving back. It's are, are we actually being 
good stewards of our time, talent, and treasure, the the contribution piece isn't just, well, okay, here's my 10%. It's saying, man, the life that I've been given, whatever talents, whatever resources I have, that's all a gift, and I need to steward that well in the world. So we're always, always, always asking questions around the three C's and how can we how can we have more maturing three C Christ followers? Yeah, and so Wax says here, Going back to his three B's, he says the three B's have been blown up, leaving church leaders disoriented. Some feel concerned because there are no objective. This is in the midst of the pandemic. There are no objective numbers to measure whether or not they're doing a good job. Others feel relieved. The B's had been in decline and now the measurements are shifting into other areas. Uh, A few assume that once the pandemic is over, we'll go right back to the three B's like before. But that's unlikely to happen, Wax says. The budget won't be the same, and neither will the attendance, probably for a long time. To compare one's numbers after the stay-at-home orders are lifted to the weeks before the pandemic won't work. And then he goes on to say, maybe this disorientation is a hidden gift from the Lord. Perhaps we've relied too long on numbers in order to judge our success, and we've not paid attention to aspects of discipleship that we can't easily quantify. Surely it was a mistake to assume that a church is faithful if the pastors keep gathering the same or growing numbers of bodies, as if pastoral communication is the end all of church success without much emphasis on the connections taking place between members throughout the week. Uh, And so he goes on to talk about how these numbers fail us. And he ends this way. The global pandemic is a great time to rethink our metrics to make sure we don't grow overly discouraged or encouraged by certain numbers. Just as we've had to find new ways to minister during this season, we'll also need to look to better metrics by which to measure health, health and growth. I do think that's going to be one of the uh, interesting aspects for all churches as a whole right now is to kind of find our footing. Don't you think about how do we even evaluate what's going on right now within our churches? Well, let me actually mention the questions that he raises, because I feel like this is the whole point of the article. So he proposes a couple of questions that we could maybe be asking instead. Uh, one is, how many members do we have in our discipleship training, whatever that may look like? Two, how many people volunteer or are part of our outreach evangelism training? Three, how many of our young people demonstrate a passion for missions? Four, what are the signs that members are active in serving one another? And five, how many of our members are really known by our pastors, staff, and lay mm-hmm. leaders, which again, correspond loosely to some of the three Bs, but they, they go a lot deeper. And the common right. thread there is a lot about being known, actively involved, and discipleship. How are we actually pouring into them and encouraging them to then do the same with others? Absolutely. So you can find that at our Facebook page from the Gospel Coalition, Trevor Wax, blowing up the three Bs. Well, coming up next at For the Church, when the right way feels like the wrong direction. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on this Thursday afternoon. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, online, 1160hope.com. You can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, we're enjoying just doing these shows throughout this time of stay at home. Hopefully, uh, in your new rhythm, uh, we're able to provide you with some encouragement, some things to think about, maybe even some laughs. And uh, we are really, uh, really glad for those of you who make up the, uh, the Common Good community. So we are grateful for you. Uh, before we jump into this next article, 
Let me remind you that during the coronavirus pandemic, we know that so many businesses have had to close their doors or reduce their hours. We also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. So if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. That's all one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form, and we're going to compile all of that information and share it with our listeners. Best part is it's totally free, no catch. So go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Uh, one of the beauties of working from home, were you able to hear my uh, really tiny dog just going crazy right there, or was that just me? Did you hear that? I did. I did hear that. I mean, you would have thought, like, I have a, a legitimate attack dog in my house. Instead, she is 13 pounds. <laughs> Adorable. But uh, yes, she is the she is the definition of the bark being bigger than the bite, because she'll mm-hmm. bark and bark and bark at you and then lick your feet is what Aww. will happen if somebody Aww. comes. So. so sweet. So sweet. Yes, it is. Until, until you got to live with it. So, no, I love my dog. So at For the Church, when the right way feels like the wrong direction. What's going on in this article? So it's written by Katie McCoy, and she begins by telling a story where they weren't sure what the directions were, and they were getting all confused, and it's a pretty funny story. Um, and then she says, the funny thing about being in unfamiliar territory is that sometimes the directions don't make sense until you can look back and see where you were. Wow. God's word is chock full of gutsy, adventurous women who probably felt like they didn't know where they were going at the time. Before Ruth was the celebrated ancestor of King David, she was an impoverished widow Gentile who left all that was familiar to stay with her mother-in-law. Before Elizabeth gave birth to the son who would prepare a nation to meet its Messiah, she was infertile until her old age and lived in reproach. Before Abigail married into royalty, she was stuck with a fool for a husband and had to intervene for the lives when he spoke rashly. Before Priscilla met and traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys and spiritually nurtured the preacher Apollos, she and her husband were displaced Jews that were kicked out of their Roman home. And before she was revered for her obedience and known as the Virgin Mother of Jesus, Mary was a socially ostracized teenager. Few would believe these women were just like us. They had fears, uncertainties, and situations beyond their control, but they trusted God over their circumstances. They lived as though the why part of their story wasn't as important as the what God did with it. They remind us that we may not understand why we're being led in a certain direction until we can look back and see from where God has brought us. Sometimes it's really easy to get stuck in trying to figure out the will of God. We end up focusing on the destination we're trying to find instead of simply moving in the direction we're supposed to be going. We forget uh, to zero in on what we're, we already know is God's will for us, like our sanctification and our purity, a heart of joy, prayer, and thankfulness, and a reputation for goodness that leaves unbelievers speechless. We miss the reality that the purpose of our lives, no, a uh, purpose of our lives is to know Christ and to make Him known. It may sound simplistic, but lately I've been learning that following Jesus is more about the direction I'm headed in than the destination I'm headed for. I think that. Mm. And I'll stop right there. There's more to the article. And she gives a lot of biblical references as well that I I didn't actually mention. But I think that's an interesting concept, especially when we're faced with so much uncertainty where a lot of us just want to quickly get to whatever the destination is going to be so we can have some certainty or we can have some kind of concrete picture about what we're shooting for. And I think this is a and we've talked about this kind of thing before, but being mindful of the trajectory of our lives, maybe Mm -hmm. another way to say it is not just where we're going, but who we're becoming. 
mm-hmm. I think, uh, or what we're doing, but who we're becoming, like the stuff, the decisions that we're making right now are forming us. They're shaping us for better or for worse. And I think being mindful of that kind of direction type stuff that she's talking about is is a really good call. It really is. That, that's such a powerful line the first time I read this, that sometimes the directions don't make sense until you can look back and see where you were. Um, and, and this whole concept of like, you know, we're trying to get somewhere, get somewhere, get somewhere, but God's doing work in our lives on the journey. And, um, you know, this whole concept of uh, it's not always just about where you're trying to end up, but it's about the journey and the direction, what God's doing in and through you along the way. It reminds me right of the uh, quote we use all the time, Eugene Peterson's long obedience in the same direction, just uh, that that sometimes uh, the realization that God is with us, even when we don't understand what's going on around us, uh, is so powerful Um and and it's just it, it provides us with with not just peace, but also purpose, even when we don't understand always what's going on around us all the time. Yeah. Well, and I wonder what advice would you give then to someone in light of this? Like how how do you help someone move from focusing on the destination to paying attention to their direction? Like, well, how would you advise someone to actually do that? You know, I think one of them would be one thing I would say is just because you haven't reached the destination, whatever it is you're trying to get to, it doesn't mean that God's not at work. And so you could still lean in. Right. You can still lean in in prayer. You could still that trust trust that God is present and not, uh, you know, I think back. Uh, so so I'm trying to think when I would have known this in my life, you know, when my wife and I were having uh, trouble um, ha- we had a bunch of miscarriages and had trouble get pregnant and, you know, the destination for us was a baby, right? Like that was the goal right. uh, that if that's all it's about, then you could forget that along the way, God is still present and God is selective, even though we kept running into roadblocks and having disappointments and whatever else it might be. Uh, and, and you can it, it's it becomes the difference between blaming God and going uh, you're not doing what you, you know, you're supposed to do versus like, man, I'm, I'm sad. This is hard, but God is still present. God is still present right now. Uh, and it's, you know, when she even said here, I've been learning that following Jesus is more about direction. I'm headed than in the, de- than the destination, uh, knowing that God is with you on that journey, I think, uh, can give you peace and hope in the dark times and uh, also just remind you of his presence. And so I, I would encourage people in that way. Uh, when you read this, what, how would you use it as an encouragement for people? Uh, I would almost maybe use it as a, as a challenge more than an encouragement, because I think sometimes we drift into patterns and behaviors that we never really intended to find ourselves in. And because we didn't just jump in feet first one day into this thing, but we drifted toward it. I think that's how direction works, right? Like our trajectory, you know, maybe you had a a dream or a vision for your life when you were 20 and maybe that vision needed to die. Right. And it's not, it's, you know, a lot of the Hollywood really kind of elevates like, Oh, who you are when you were 19, that's your truest version of yourself. I don't think that's, Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true at all, but I think it's really, really important to, this is where I think the discipline of reflection, of meditation, of Sabbath and rest. I think it's all interconnected. I think having people in your life that recognize that you'll continue to become a different person as you grow and mature, but will also help you guard maybe some of what that essence is and will will kind of help you snap out of it a little bit. Like, hey, you're behaving in such a way or you're talking about people or to people in a way that 
I know isn't really you or not really who you want to become. I think when it comes to like deciphering direction, like for you and your wife to really, really want a baby, there's nothing wrong with, there's nothing to repent of there. Like that's a good and holy and righteous aim um, filled with like legitimate frustration in that season, frustration. And I assume like sadness and grief. And I think when it comes to like deciphering our direction, it, it does take the hard work of asking if I were to look back at my life the last year, if I were to travel back in time to Ian a year ago, would I recognize or like the person that I am right now? And hmm. if the answer is no, it's not a self-flagellating, well, I guess I'm just a garbage person. It's it's like shifting our prayer focus and asking, God, would you weed out the stuff, the habits maybe that I've picked up the last year or five years or 10 years that I don't, I, I know aren't good for me, they're toxic, and they and I, I think that's a part of a sanctifying question is to you know look honestly about the direction of our own lives. Yeah. Yeah. That's really well put. This article is a challenge. I'd encourage you to read it at our Facebook page uh, entitled when the right way feels like the wrong direction. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show the same way we end every show interweb insanities. That's going to come up next here on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Well, that music can only mean one thing. It's the end of the show. It's interweb insanity. This is the time where Ian and I read stories, sight unseen, given to us uh, by our executive producer, Keith Conrad. Uh, As we like to say, sometimes they make us laugh. Sometimes they make us cringe. But we're doing that right alongside with you. So glad that you joined us today. Let's end the show this way. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, out of Israel, fearing end of the world, man returns ancient stolen relic. And the photo is him smiling a big smile, apparently, too. 15 years after he filched. Is that a word? Have you heard that word? No. Filched a 2,000-year-old ballista stone from a Jerusalem archaeological site. An anonymous Israeli arranged to return it to the Israel Antiquities Authority. The man explained... The coronavirus crisis made him feel, quote, the end of the world is near, and he wanted to clear his conscience. Uh, Mashi Mains, the person who agreed to bring the Pilford? Pilford Stone to the state Pilford. without divulging the identity of the thief, wrote a post about it on Facebook. He explained that the thief had been a teen when he and some friends toured a display of the Bellas Stones in the Jerusalem Walls National Park in the city of David. These stones were likely used by the Roman Legion in fierce battles against the besieged residents of Jerusalem around 70 CE, the year of the destruction of Jerusalem. <gasps> oh, great Odin's Raven. Next one's out of New York. FDNY rescues cops stuck in tree trying to rescue a cat. <laughs> Firefighters had to rescue an NYPD PD officer stuck in a tree after the cop climbed up to try and save a cat Monday in Queens. Uh, the FDNY said it received a call at 2.40 p.m. for a police officer stuck in a tree. They responded with a lower a tower ladder and found the officer and the cat about 30 feet up in the tree. Both were rescued uh, safe and sound. The black and white cat appeared to be about a year old and was not wearing a collar. Uh, the neighbor said it was kind of comical. They seemed to be enjoying themselves. There were no rude comments or anything. Oh, how nice. Well, isn't that nice? All right, this next one's from the land down under, Australia. Big jackpot changes wife's opinion of lottery ticket purchase. That makes sense. An Australian man who caught his wife's ire for wasting money on a lottery ticket (laughs) said she changed her tune when the ticket earned 
$1.16 million jackpot. The Secret Harbor Western Australia man told Lottery West officials his wife was initially displeased to learn he had bought a ticket for Saturday's Superdraw Lottery drawing at the Lucky Charm Secret Harbor. I saw how much was on offer, so I decided to buy a ticket. The winner said, I got in trouble with my wife when I told her I bought one, but she has taken that back now. Uh, the man said his wife's opinion of the lottery ticket changed when it won them $1.16 million. The only other prize we have ever won was a six-pack of beer, the man said. You want to put in for some lottery tickets? Oh, gosh, I would. I really would. But you see, I already set fire to a big pile of money just this morning. Of course she was excited about it now. That's nice. Next one's out of North Carolina. Stranger steps in when snakes spotted on dashboard. A North Carolina woman said a stranger and her son came to the rescue when she spotted a long black snake slithering across her dashboard. Gail Henderson, a professor at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, said she was driving on May the 6th on Highway 54 when she spotted the three to four foot snake on her dashboard. So it was while she was driving. That's crazy. Oh, boy. It was stretched, stretched lengthwise across the entire front dashboard. I only realized it when it started slithering. It took a second before I realized it was a big, long snake. I pulled off to the road onto a grassy shoulder and hopped out of the car, completely freaked out. Henderson was spotted by stranger Michelle Steely, who was driving nearby with a 13-year-old son, Mark. Steely, who has experience with snakes, was able to capture the reptile with help from her son. The snake was released into nearby woods. Steely said that the gesture required her to overcome her fear of snakes. She said, I was really thinking about the woman in the vehicle and what I would want someone to do for me in that situation. I wouldn't be able to get back in that car. And my son said, we can help this lady. I firmly believe that you should treat others the way you want to be treated. Enough is enough. I have had it with these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday play. All right. This last one really is accentuated by the image. I encourage you to Creepy. It's in Virginia, restaurant to seat mannequins at empty tables to make social distancing less awkward. And I would add, I don't think that accomplished their intended goal. (laughs) Uh, A highly rated restaurant says it plans to fill empty tables with mannequins to make social distancing rules less awkward when customers are allowed to return. The Inn at Little Washington in Virginia, a three Michelin starred restaurant, plans to open for dinner on May 29th. And it could start welcoming guests for half capacity outdoor seating as early as Friday when coronavirus restrictions are eased, according to Eater, Washington, D.C. When the restaurant gets the green light to start serving customers inside his dining room, Chef Patrick O'Connell. <laughs> nope. Oh, is it Patrick O'Connell? Yeah. That's what it says. I read that right. I thought I was like filling that in myself because we know a Patrick O'Connell. <laughs> New Thing Network. I don't think this is his story. Uh, he plans to seat empty tables with mannequins. The news outlet reported O'Connell says the mannequins will be decked out in vintage 1940s-style outfits. You could learn a lot from a dummy. Buckle your safety belt. Yeah, I don't know. It's a creepy picture. I think I'd rather have the empty tables around me. <laughs> Would you? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> they're dressed like superheroes, maybe? Uh, the, it's not even that they're creepy mannequins. It's that the whole time you're there, obviously none of them are going to move. So they're just yeah, going right. to be stuck in one spot. It's going to be weird. So <laughs> it's a creepy picture. Well, we're glad that you joined us today on this Thursday afternoon. We hope you have a great rest of your day. Join us tomorrow from 4 until 6 for Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.